From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Partisanship seems intractable. We have two problems at the same time. We don't like each other, and we don't trust the formal institutions that might be the answer to helping us come back together. But that wasn't always the case. Not too long ago, Republicans and Democrats had neutral feelings for one another. We call this a journey of persuasion. And what we see is that the increase in people's warmth towards the other party is 20 points on this scale relative to people who haven't seen the video. Yet money and the media mean the effects aren't long-lasting. It's another in our series of conversations about tribalism. Later, Miller moths are everywhere. While they can be buggy, experts encourage us to appreciate them. We'll find out why and if there are more this year than usual. Every day, there are complex issues to decipher, from our changing climate to education to water rights and the economy. You want to understand the impacts and hear directly from decision makers and the people affected by those decisions. Because of CPR's and NPR's careful and thorough reporting, you know more about your community, state, nation, and world. And your financial support helps make it all possible. It's easy to give at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. I want you to try to guess what political party this person belongs to. He's talking about how kids learn American history. I think we want to teach the facts and we want to teach what happened, even if that's a disturbing or dark past. I still think we should be teaching that. That is Don, a young man in Texas. And as you heard there, he thinks disturbing chapters of our history must be taught. So what is his political affiliation, Stephen Hawkins? He's a Republican. Folks, this is Stephen Hawkins, who joins us from time to time to discuss partisanship in this country. He lives in Englewood. He's research director for More in Common, a global nonprofit focused on, well, cohesive democracies. Hi again, Stephen. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Don is a Republican. Should that surprise us? It doesn't surprise me, but... In my job, I get to have conversations with Republicans and Democrats in focus groups and interviews all the time. And we find that everyday people don't match up very well to the personas that we see on Twitter and to the most ideological members of each party. And so the notion that a Republican would say, yes, the unseemly parts of our history ought to be taught, that doesn't sync up necessarily with what we see in social media and what we hear from perhaps the loudest politicians. Not at all. In fact, if you ask Democrats, what percentage of Republicans do they think want to teach Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks to every American student? They'll say 35% of Republicans want to teach them. In reality, because we've done studies on this, 93% of Republicans want to teach those characters. So there's a huge chasm between perception and reality on many of these big questions about how we think about our history. Okay. You think there's been a breakthrough in the work that you do to reduce partisanship. And the the video clip of Don, we heard, is part of that. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, there's two components to this. The first is what we call affective polarization. And this is how you feel towards the other party. Now, feelings towards the other party have been falling for about 40 years. They used to be pretty close to neutral. On a 100-point scale, they'd be just below... 50. 
And now they've dropped all the way down to somewhere in the mid-20s, which is how you'd feel towards someone you actively dislike. Okay, so there was a time in American history where a Republican did not despise Democrats. They felt neutrally. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, 70s, 80s, early 80s. now we're in a very different place. Yeah. Now, if you ask Democrats who they don't want their children to marry, the top answer is Republicans. Oh. So that's the first part is affective polarization. Yeah. The second part is a decline in trust. It also used to be the case in the United States in the middle of the 20th century that 75% of Americans would say they trusted the federal government to do the right thing most of the time. Mm-hmm. They trusted major institutions like the media as well. We have seen a big, big drop in trust in the media and in institutional information in general. So then we, we have two problems at the same time. We don't like each other. And we don't trust the formal institutions that might be the answer to helping us come back together. Hmm. Both of them are dimensions of trust, by the way. It's as if we don't trust the institutions nor one another. Yes. But that may be based on a mischaracterization of one another, which perhaps Don's feelings about teaching history reflect. Yes, or at least an exaggeration. We don't want to claim that there aren't significant differences between the parties and that there aren't bad people in each party, but we do want to get those differences into perspective. And so the clip that you just played has interesting elements to it that address both that affective polarization and that decline in trust. Mm-hmm. Because what we did was we tested a short video that introduces you to members of your own party who express their skepticism about how much they have in common with the other party. Mm-hmm. Meet fellow Democrats, hear them talk about how they don't think they have much in common with Republicans. Then the video goes on to introduce you to several Republicans who express sincerely their own views on how to teach American history. We mix in some statistics that we have captured over the last year about how people think from each party about teaching history, which tend to surprise you like the one that I just shared. And then at the conclusion, we, re- we return to those fellow Democrats or fellow Republicans who have watched this video alongside you, and they express a bit of comfort, a bit of reassurance that the differences aren't as large as they expected. Indeed. You had Democrats watch Don's video. And let's listen to a reaction from Emily, a young Democrat in Florida. It was very refreshing and almost surprising to hear their take on these statements and that they do, and like, based on the clips we saw, like, we're not too different. And you do a kind of before and after measurement. Yeah. And what does it show and why is it a big deal? Well, so we call this a journey of persuasion. <laughs> and what we see is that the increase in people's warmth towards the other party is 20 points on this scale relative to people who haven't seen the video. It, it jumps 20 points? It jumps 20 points. Does it last more than five minutes? It doesn't last more than five days. That's what we know. Wow. Really, this is crucial. So there's great news, and then there's a big problem. The great news is that this study that we conducted outperforms the best interventions that have been tested by Stanford University, for instance, who's a big leader in studying this issue. The term affective polarization comes from scholars at the Political Science Department at Stanford. Last year, they tested 25 interventions, and the one that we just talked through, you and I, Ryan, that one outperformed all 25 that they had tested last year. Hmm. It's typical to see results around a five-point jump. We saw results of a 20-point jump. So that's huge, but to put it into context, it means that people are moving back to that level of the mid-40s on that 100-point scale 
Those neutral days. Those neutral days back to the early Reagan era, to the late Carter era when partisan animosity was very much under control. So we're reversing that whole decline over the last four decades in feelings towards the other party. But it doesn't last Mm -hmm. because it's just a five-minute intervention in a torrent of information that people are being subjected to every day through their social media feeds, cable news, and in their real lives. Right. It occurred to me that they leave your lab, for lack of a better term, I think this is all virtual work, but they leave your lab and then they turn on MSNBC or Fox News and they hear messages from perhaps former presidents and life snaps back to what we know. Yeah. I am reminded of the Wright brothers' first flight. It didn't last very long, but that they got into the air was a success, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And now we can cross oceans. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that a good framing to think about this with? Like if if you can move the needle for five days, maybe you can move it for 15 and then 30. Let's work with this metaphor. I like it. Okay. The enemy for the Wright brothers was gravity. Uh-huh. <laughs> the enemy in this work is incentives in our system. The media, and I'm sorry to say this as a member of the media, but the, let's call it the, the mainstream media, social media, and politicians and campaigning, all of them have interests towards conflict. And so when you try and pull away from that, towards reconciliation, towards common perception of the fellow American as someone who's not a threat, then the mainstream media, social media, and politicians pull you back towards that conflict because that conflict is good for their business model. Right. Rage often results in clicks and interactions. I suspect for politicians, rage also equals donations. I don't think we talk enough about money yeah. when I see you, Stephen. Yes, maybe money is the equivalent to gravity here. The money is pulling us towards conflict in this country. You know, um, Elise Stefanik, this uh, relatively young female, up and coming congresswoman, Harvard educated on the Republican side. She's kind of taken an interesting trajectory in her career where she was relatively moderate for many years. She decided recently to be combative and really lean into being part of a pro-Trump faction. And she did so very publicly, House floor speeches, et cetera. She raised more money after that decision in the first week than she had in the entirety of her previous election cycle. It's astronomically different. If you can be in the spotlight because you are aggressive, combative, accusatory, your fundraising numbers will skyrocket. Is this an individual job of like circumventing our rage machine, our internal rage machine? One one thing I take note of on Twitter is if someone is trying to bait me, I think, what are their motives? Mm-hmm. Is this a bot? Mm-hmm. Is this there to sow dissent? Mm-hmm. Is this inside work or is this systemic work? Let me pick a third option, which is that maybe it's cultural work. And the culture is a product of our values, our entertainment, who we celebrate. And if we orient ourselves around values of humility, empathy towards others, a sense of responsibility for the trajectory of the country, and we instantiate those values in the films and TV and music that we listen to, and we 
punish socially people who are falsely, cynically combative, then we can steer away from this, hmm. address some of the systemic issues, but it's also through individual behaviors. So the culture might be the avenue here for change. Do you have to be Pollyanna to do this work? There's always risk of that, right? I take hope from previous eras in America's history. America's history has always been checkered and ugly and always had big, big problems of inequality and racism and other things, but it has not always suffered from problems of lack of respect for political opponents, cynicism, and a disrespect for our institutions and our processes. And that's the chapter that we're in now. And so I even think back to my own college days in 2008, John McCain, Barack Obama was an era in which there was a lot of respect for our institutions and for the country. And the combat in the campaign cycle there was restrained within bounds. I remember and, John McCain correcting one of his own supporters. Yeah. Uh, I think it's this rather infamous scene yeah. of a woman at a rally saying, he's a Muslim, he's yeah. a Muslim. I, I want to be very clear, being a Muslim is fine. So I don't take that to be some sort of put down, but it was not true of the president. Yeah. And John McCain corrected the supporter. Yeah. Whereas today you could imagine someone seeing that as an opportunity. Oh, there's a way I can characterize my opponent in this negative way that draws on people's biases. Let it go. Each time you join us, Stephen, I ask some version of this question. Does the work you do become dangerous or even harmful when it is applied to an issue, let's say like voter fraud, hmm. false claims of a stolen election? Mm -hmm. Fraud, in fact, is rare. It is prosecuted. The 2020 election was not a sham. Mm -hmm. Let's say you sit someone down who believes in widespread election fraud and someone who doesn't. Is there danger in doing this kind of work on some of the most difficult issues in this country that actually are around truth mm -hmm. and in which it might be dangerous to introduce both sidesism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that there's a real trap there. We don't engage on questions. And another example would be climate change, right? There are not two valid perspectives on every question, but many questions relate to values and many questions relate to identity. And then the perception of the other side is often distorted. And so our work is about trying to correct distortions, trying to get people to understand the different values that inform people's perspectives and trying to build a shared identity, right? And Doing so on a platform that acknowledges that we have to concede through a process of humility what we don't know and concede to the facts. So we have to start from a place of objectivity and facts. But then from there, the good work comes from identity, shared identity, sorry, values and correcting misperceptions. But that is not, once again, what we often hear from the loudest and perhaps best fundraising politicians. I agree completely. I think it's a conversation where black and white and intimidation and bullying and prejudice and bigotry should be excluded from fair participation in the conversation. We need to have the conversation that starts from a place of empathy. What is it like to be the other person in this conversation from humility? 
What is it that I might be wrong about and might not know? And objectivity, what is it that we can put on the table as fact? And that's where the conversation starts. I want to note recently that Donald Trump hugged a woman at a campaign event who wants Mike Pence, the former vice president, executed for treason for not sending votes back to the states in the 2020 election. How much of the discourse today is a function of one man and how much is one man actually a reflection of something broader? Wow, what a big question. There's no denying the centrality of Donald Trump in all of this. It's He has really shaped our political discourse in a new direction. I think if you look at what happened with the Tea Party starting in 2009, mm-hmm. I think that was pre-Trump in terms of Trump's relevance to yeah, politics. I think that's right. But I think that it created some of the energy, the populist anger at the elite, the populist rejection of the establishment government that Trump then benefited from and fomented. And then I think that Trump invented a new type of persona in politics. It was normal at the time that he entered politics to be insincere as a politician, an elected (laughs) official. It was. Yeah. But Donald Trump has introduced a kind of brazen, unapologetic attitude and a scorn for anything that is a norm or an institution that might prevent him from reaching his goals. That is new. And that is, frankly, I think a dangerous, sets a precedent for a kind of race to the bottom where you just care about your own interests and everything that might be considered principle, tradition, institution, fair play is considered weak. Thanks so much for being with us, Stephen. I always appreciate your reflections. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood is research director for More in Common, a global nonprofit whose aim is to reduce partisanship in hopes of preserving democracies. After a break, it's Miller time, as in moths, not the beer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. Miller moths are everywhere, and while you might find them a nuisance, experts encourage us to appreciate them, as KRCC's Abigail Beckman reports. Nan Rupert lives in Centennial, a suburb of Denver. She says she's been swatting Miller moths out of her house for a few weeks now, and it feels early. Somehow my memory tells me that it's more of a June phenomenon. Years ago, we had one year that was a really heavy heavy moth infestation. It was so heavy that my cat got tired of chasing them. And we haven't had another year like that. Is your cat still interested in them this year? He is interested in them this year, yes. It's it's a new cat. (laughs) Okay. I like the idea of using a cat as a gauge of moth activity. That's a good visual. (laughs) Yes. He has been very active the last few days, chasing them off the doorstep and... (laughs) 
chasing them around the porch. Rupert isn't alone in feeling like the moths are ahead of schedule this year, but experts say they're actually right on time, making their annual first appearances in May and sticking around into early June. I used to smash them, you know, stomp them. And then I realized these little guys are migratory, and I had not known that. So now I just try and shoo them on their way. And she's right. When the days get warmer and longer, that signals the moths to head west from Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Colorado's eastern plains. And they will head all the way up to the Rocky Mountains, um, spend the summer there foraging and feeding on alpine flowers. Shiran Hershkovich is a scientist at the Denver Area Butterfly Pavilion. As a lepidopterist, she studies butterflies and moths and says many of the petite piloting pilgrims don't survive the summer. Turns out Miller moths are essentially protein snacks on wings. So a lot of them will feed other animals that we love seeing in the ecosystem like birds, bears, and really all sorts of critters. Her advice? Be kind to them. They're not that different from us. All they want is food and shelter. So as they migrate through, we should welcome them as good neighbors. And actually, as they visit flower to flower, they will even pollinate them, which is a very important process that we all depend on for survival. She says figuring out if we're in for a big moth year depends on the weather. When it's dry, they tend to concentrate around irrigated spaces like backyards and city parks. But this year we had a particularly wet winter with a lot of snowfall, which might indicate that we will have a lot of blooming flowers. So that is a good sign that moss won't necessarily be concentrated along our houses. It was also pretty cold this winter, and that affects the moths and their ability to reproduce. And so all things considered, I think this will be our average Miller moth year. No crazy explosions, not too underwhelming either. But that leaves a few other questions, like why are they called Miller moths? Hershkovich says their delicate wings are covered in tiny scales. So when they fly around, they might um, rub off some scales. And if they were to fall on you, it looks a little bit like dust that you might see in a mill. So that is the origin story of that name that we hear all the time. As for why they end up in our houses, our cars, and everywhere else, Hershkovich says, like other moths, they're confused by light pollution because they use celestial objects as wayfinding tools. When they see our city lights, they get confused. Could that be the moon? Could that be a really bright star? And they suddenly lose their way. And that, she says, is why they seem to dart around erratically. The thing is, we have almost pulled the rug from underneath them and created a whole new um, environment that they're not used to working around. They're coping with change and they look a little clumsy while doing it, but there is a lot of sophistication behind that bumbling. Hershkovich says their departure will be just as quick as their arrival. The moths usually stick around for about a month. Abigail Beckman, KRCC News. Abigail's story is part of Colorado Wonders, where we answer listener questions about this strange and wonderful place. Come ask your own at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Be back shortly with the new Western Slope Poet Laureate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Of all of Colorado's beautiful places, a scene photographed more than most is the Maroon Bells, the pair of purple and white striped 14ers near Aspen. To see them at sunrise, reflected perfectly in Maroon Lake below, is simply stunning. 
The peaks get their unique color and streaked appearance from mudstone, which can be crumbly and fragile and dangerous to climb. There's a U.S. Forest Service sign at an access trail. It warns, quote, the rock is downsloping, rotten, loose, and unstable. It kills without warning. It goes on to say, expert climbers who did not know the proper routes have died here. Don't repeat their mistakes, for only rarely have these mountains given a second chance. Words to consider before you climb the Maroon Bells, also known as the Deadly Bells. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. Supported by National Jewish Health. Breathing science is life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Poetry can be daunting, but it doesn't have to be. So says Palisade artist Wendy Vidalock, who is the Western Slope's new poet laureate. Many people install their anti-poetry deflector shields back in high school. And so as a poet, uh, I have always felt that it was kind of my role to take those deflector shields down because poetry can do so much. And it may not look like it's all that important to the culture, but when somebody dies, the first thing people do is look to the poets. Wendy Vidalock hopes communities across the Western Slope make poetry a little more present and a little more accessible. For one, she'd like to get poetry into public meetings. She also wants to make sure writers, sculptors, painters, and musicians work in concert. There's actually an art called ekphrasis, which is, you know, way back when, before photography, the poets would see a great work of art or a great sculpture and would write about it. And that's how the average people would know about, you know, a painting because they couldn't go to these places where the paintings were and there were no photographs of it. And so the poets would be describing great pieces of art. It's called ekphrasis. And we still do it today. We go to galleries. We elicit, you know, poets to write poems about particular paintings. It's one of the ways that we bring, you know, the arts together. Vidalock has published seven books, including five poetry collections. We asked her to share a poem from her latest work, Wise to the West. The chickadee is all about truth. The finch is a token. The albatross is always an omen. The kestrel is mental. The lark is luck. The grouse is dance. The goose is quest. The need for speed is given the peregrine and the dove has been blessed with the feminine. The quail is word and culpability. The crane is the dean of poetry. The swift is the means to agility. The waxwing, mere civility. The sparrow, a nod to working-class nobility. The puffins, the brother of laughter and prayer. The starling, the student of Baudelaire. The mockingbird is the sound of redress. The grackle, the uncle of excess. The flicker is rhythm. The ostrich is earth. The bluebird, a simple symbol of mirth. The oriole is the fresh start. The magpie, prince of the dark arts. The swallow is home and protection. The vulture, the priest of purification. The heron, a font of self-reflection. The swisher belongs to the fairy realm. Resourcefulness is the cactus wren. The pheasant is sex. The chicken is egg. The eagle is free. The canary, the bringer of ecstasy. The marten is peace. The stork, release. 
The swan is the mother of cool discretion. The loon is the watery voice of the moon. The owl is the keeper of secrets and grief and fresh-fallen snow. And the crow, the crow has the bones of the ancestral soul. That was Deconstruction by Wendy Vidalock of Palisade. She's the new Western Slope Poet Laureate through a partnership of the Telluride Institute and the Grand Valley Creative Alliance. Our thanks to Colorado Matters producer Tom Hess for that segment. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've chosen the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You read with us, then take part in a conversation with the author. Our new pick is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden by Camille T. Dungy. She's a distinguished professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and she is indeed a parent and a plant mom. There are so many similarities between raising a child and raising plants. One of them that strikes me that I write about in Soil directly is the fact that (laughs) plants come in these tiny little packages. (laughs) They just, they're seeds or seedlings that can fit in the palm of your hand. And then I have to remember when I put them in the soil that they could grow to be six feet tall and and as wide. And I have to give them the space and the support that they need to grow into their full possibilities. And of course, my own daughter, I could once hold in my hand and now she's almost taller than I am. And I have to always be able to give her the support and the space that she needs to truly grow the way she needs to. This is a book about gardens and family and justice. Pick up a copy of Soil by Camille T. Dungy. Then join us in the perfect place for the interview, Denver Botanic Gardens, the evening of Thursday, June 29th. Tickets are free but limited. To get yours, head over to cpr.org slash turn the page. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.